I'm Amber. And I'm Becca. From cranberries to cows and everything in between, this is Forward Farming. Hey guys, welcome back to Forward Farming. Tonight, I, I'm really excited for today's episode. I'm going to be joined with an agriculture scientist and we sit down, uh, this, this is me from the future, by the way. So I already had this conversation and it's a good one. And I think this conversation is, is going to be really beneficial to, um, those who feel confused when they walk into a grocery store. I know even as a farmer, I get a little confused when I see all of these labels jumping out at me saying like non-GMO, um, organic, like all these big trigger words that you see when you're at the store. And I, I want to make sure that you guys are feeling safe and confident in your food purchases when you're at the store. Um, whether that be, um, if you are strictly an all organic family, um, maybe think about that a little bit more on, on what organic means to you. Um, why, if you are afraid of GMOs, why is that the case and how, um, we're just talking about how to make you feel safe about your purchases basically. Um, cause again, it is very overwhelming and, and prices are going up a little bit more. So I want to make sure that you feel confident and comfortable in what you are spending your hard-earned money on, and you can feel safe and comfortable feeding not only yourself, but your family as well. So this is a really great conversation. Um, I don't want to make this intro too long, really drag it out by any means. Um, but again, if you have any questions about what we talk about today, feel free to reach out uh, to us at Board Farming Podcast on Facebook or Instagram um, and, and hit me with those follow-up questions because I would love to get those answered for you if we didn't cover it in today's episode. So without further ado, we're going to be speaking to Dave Jones, who is an agriculture scientist. All right. So I am here joined today. I'm really excited for this conversation. I'm here with Dave Jones. He's an agriculture scientist. Uh, he works with Ocean Spray. He is a consultant for us at our marsh. He comes out, checks our stuff out throughout the season, helps us um, all year long with any problems that we might have or just check in and say hi. Great guy. Um, I'm really excited to poke his brain with some of these questions that you guys sent my way. So thank you, Dave, for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So let's start out, throw you right in the hot seat. So start off by telling us about yourself, what your job is, because that's a pretty big title that you carry. So where did you come from? How did you get here with Ocean Spray? Yeah. Oh boy. That's a, that's <laughs> loaded a great question. question. It's, a loaded, it's a heavy question. <laughs> yes. Um, so as you said, my title is agricultural scientist and I, I cover uh, Wisconsin, also technically Minnesota and Michigan, because there are actually a couple of growers there. So I work for Ocean Spray, like you mentioned, which is a cooperative of growers. Um, how did I get here? Well, um, I have, I did not grow up on a farm. Um, that's something that people are often a little surprised to hear about me, just given what I do now. But I grew up around farming. It's something that has always been present in my life, uh, thanks to involvement in agriculture from both sides of my family when I was a kid. Um, and interestingly, in hindsight, the, the signs were all there, I think, that I was going to be an agricultural scientist from a very young age. I mean, some of the earliest memories I have are of things like apples at my mom's family's farms, uh, pumpkins, things like that. Um, but I don't think that things really clicked that agriculture was a job for me um, that could be that I could do uh, really up until almost college, I would say, in spite of my lifelong love of all things plant science. So um, 
when I was in college, I was fortunate enough to have a couple of key internships through the University of Wisconsin at a couple of our awesome research stations here mm-hmm. in the state of Wisconsin. And uh, watching some of the scientists working at those stations um, and some of the extension specialists and doing the work that they were doing with the farmers, uh, the connection they had with the industry was was really inspirational to me as a student. And it kind of led me to realize, well, hey, you know, I maybe I don't have my parents' farm to go back to, but I love farming. I love farmers. There's this, there's something here and I could, I could do this. And uh, so after I finished my undergraduate, I ended up going on uh, for a graduate degree at UW-Madison. Where uh, My undergraduate was in horticulture and my graduate degree was in plant pathology, which is the study of disease, you know, plant diseases, essentially. I like to say it's the study of what makes plants sick and how to fix it, um, if you will. Um, after that, I spent some time working at Michigan State University. So I was a, a, what they call a, a tree fruit or a fruit educator. Educator is basically a very broad reaching term, um, including extension, including research and outreach. Um, and uh, after some time there, uh, my home state of Wisconsin, the cranberry industry, ocean spray, the co-op kind of uh, kind of lured me back home. <laughs> my, uh, my wife and I are both Wisconsinites and, uh, you know, love, love being back. And so, you know, now and now here, being here in central Wisconsin, working with the state's fruit as an agricultural scientist is really, uh, it's been, it's been a wonderful ride. It's just something I enjoy very much. So, so did you work with cranberries in your undergrad with your research? Or is this all new to you when you started here? <laughs> Funnily enough, I think I managed to work my way through every single Midwestern fruit crop that wasn't cranberries. <laughs> so I, I think that, the, the, you know, I, I fought it hard, but ultimately this Wisconsin guy couldn't stay away from the cranberries. <laughs> it sucked you back yep, in. Yep, it sucked me back in sooner or later. It was inevitable. So no, I, I worked. Um, so I will say at UW-Madison, some of the fruit classes that they have certainly do have a bit of a cranberry flair to them. Certainly mm-hmm. we learn about cranberries and some of those thousand foot concepts. So I, have, I had an awareness of cranberries as a student and also certainly as a Wisconsinite. But no, from a professional standpoint, my MO really for a long time was um, was grapes, it was apples, it was sweet cherries and tart cherries and peaches, uh, not cranberries. So this is, yeah, cranberries are uh, new as a crop, although I will say that fruit crops, there's a reason that most scientists tend to trend towards one of three categories, right? It's the fruit scientists, the vegetable scientists, and the row crop scientists, because a lot of those general techniques um, much of what we do uh, is is similar from from fruit crop to fruit crop, although some of the nuance is a little bit different. Yeah, before yep. we started recording, uh, we were talking about cherries, and I learned just so much yep. <laughs> about the cherry yep. industry in just those five ten minutes yes. that we were talking. So yes. we're gonna have to save that for a different episode. Some that was, yeah, it's wild. <laughs> um, <laughs> so today we're gonna be talking about uh, kind of a. a the big hitting question that um, I think a lot of people are curious about, especially um, kind of the the millennials are kind of more aware of it, kind of those big trigger words you see at the grocery store, organic, GMO, non-GMO. And and for this conversation, I'm going to try to take off my farmer hat for this and and have a non-biased conversation with you. Um, Because I want this to be really beneficial for you as a listener um, to help you feel secure and and confident in your in your purchases when you're at the grocery store. Um, Because I know it is scary kind of seeing those big trigger words out there. So I want to make sure that you guys feel safe in what you are feeding and uh, spending your money on in the grocery store. So um, 
let's let's kind of just dive right into it. And can you kind of, from a professional uh, standpoint, can you kind of explain the difference between conventional versus organic farming? Yeah, absolutely. So both types, um, both conventional and organic agriculture are, um, I want to emphasize are endeavors that can be done sustainably. So I think that these days we get a lot of, um, we get, a lot of times we get words that get linked together and those linkages are not necessarily consistent every time. So a great example is the link between sustainable and organic. Um, conventional farming can be highly sustainable. Um, in fact, I would, I would certainly include the cranberry industry very firmly in that category. Mm -hmm. So the big difference, um, there are several, but the big difference between organic and conventional agriculture is that crop protection strategies that are deployed in a conventional system um, versus an organic system. Uh, organic, it is derived from natural sources. So any crop protection or pesticide would be derived from a natural source, quote unquote, natural source versus a conventional um, practice would be to deploy um, both naturally derived and synthetically derived products. That said, um, I think you know, it's, it's important to keep in mind that natural does not necessarily mean safe and synthetic doesn't necessarily mean bad, right? Mm -hmm. You can think of a lot of natural things, things like snake venom and elemental copper <laughs> that are pretty bad for you. And I can think of a lot of um, synthetic things that are good for us. Um, certainly most of the clothing we wear, a lot of the plastics that we use are all great examples of synthetic objects that are not harmful. So um, certainly, but I think the biggest difference that's worth noting is that that naturally derived versus synthetically and naturally derived. Yeah. Right. And, and I, whenever someone approaches me and asks if we grow organic cranberries, um, I, I kind of just stop and I kind of like to rephrase that question. And I like to ask them, what does it mean? What does organic mean to you? And a lot of times they say, well, no nothing you know there's no chemicals being used mm, to treat the yes. crop yep, yep. and that's kind of like the big thing that people think of yep. um so can you kind of go off on that and and explain yeah the connection there yeah absolutely I, I think that the organic industry has really kind of developed that reputation of being a no input system um, but that that is in fact not the case which is something that surprises a lot of people but organic does not mean um, that that crop protection is never deployed it doesn't mean that nothing is ever sprayed on those plants mm -hmm. i'm not saying this to suggest that organic is a, it's a scam by any means but it is important to know that distinction organic food is treated with, um, it, it may be treated with pesticides. Now, these are going to be naturally derived, um, but they are pesticides nonetheless. So these will be things uh, ranging from copper and sulfur, um, certain BT strains, oils, that kind of thing. So organic does not mean pesticide free. That's a, that's a very important note to make. Um, and organic also doesn't necessarily have a synonym, is not necessarily a synonym for sustainable. Mm -hmm. it, it often is, often they overlap, but they are not one of the same thing. Right. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's, that's kind of the huge takeaway that I wanted to throw out there right away that um, organic doesn't mean that it's pesticide free. Um, yep. So what as farmers, like what, what are you looking for from the farmers before our crops are sent in? Because there's a lot of different protocols mm -hmm. on what we're applying, when we're applying oh, it. Yeah. So what are you guys looking for 
yep. as those crops start coming in ready for harvest. Yeah, safety. You know, safety is really the the end all be all. Certainly um, for us, for for really for most folks. And I think what I would emphasize before I kind of dig into this is that the United States really does have the world's safest, most reliable food supply. Mm -hmm. the, the amount of regardless of the method of agriculture, right? So this is really much on my part, much less a dialogue on which one I like. I'm not really going to comment on that because I actually, I think both are viable in their own way, Right. but safe. Are they safe? And the answer is yes. Our, our food supply is immensely safe. Um, on our, you know, on, on the end of any, any entity that handles fruit, there are several things that are done prior to that fruit uh, or that product, for example, ever make it onto the market. And for example, in cranberry, major handlers test for all, all key com compounds that could make their way onto crops, both organic and conventional. And that fruit is not allowed into the market unless it is demonstrated that those, those, those residues are not present at any level that would be concerning the human health. And so certainly we are, uh, you know, like any other handler of food, you know, the cooperative doesn't, um, doesn't just take anyone's fruit for any reason. You actually cannot deliver fruit unless it has been cleared um, and been tested prior to it being received. Mm -hmm. And so for us on our property, um, anytime if we're ever applying anything throughout the growing season, we have to take very detailed record of what we're applying. And then those records have to be sent in um, to be screened, to make sure that they're applied within a certain time frame before being harvested, to make sure that residual is completely clear of the fruit um, that was applied to before it's being harvested and sent in. And if it is, they find traces of any residue, um, that entire crop just gets thrown away. Like um, anything that touched that crop has to be scrubbed out and cleaned out again yep. and just completely thrown away um, and we're at a loss for that crop. So everything is very carefully managed and I'm, I'm assuming that's with every other crop as well, not yep. just with cranberries. So yep. Um, yep. again, safety is is a biggest concern um, and, and I feel comfortable in what we're growing. There's a reason why so many multi-generational farmers live on their property. Mm -hmm. um, we're living in, in everything if it's safe for us we want to make sure it's safe is if not even more safe for you guys as well um so i know i know like with the dairy industry mm -hmm. they have to test you know their their product after like the cow has been administered antibiotic and they have a certain holding period and it's yep. tested yep. kind of the same thing yep again with yep. cranberries very too. much so yeah very much so and you know you're 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 a mom i'm a dad yep. you know i you know, my, my life follows the series, you know, the, the cycle of agriculture year round and what my kids eat follows the, the cycle of agriculture year round. Yeah. You know, all of us, all of us younger people in the agricultural industry, I think would attest to what you just said, Amber, which is that, you know, what's being produced regardless of whether it is conventional or organic is, is safe. It's reliable, it's safe, and it's great food for our kids. And I know certainly I have that level of confidence. Not, I'm not just even talking about cranberries, it's just the mm -hmm. confidence in our food supply in general. And, and we're very fortunate in this country um, that we have groups that at the federal level that spend so much time studying every single possible compound to ensure that we have human health and safety data and to ensure that those compounds don't make it into our food supply. Yeah, and and there are some um, 
that don't make it, you know, there's some products that we are very dependent on as cranberry growers that might not uh, be renewed by the FDA um, year after year. So if it's not deemed as safe anymore, they throw that entire product out and we have to try to find something new so one one way um that we're trying to combat the use of products is with nematodes Mm -hmm. which is kind of a fun study i think i talked about this um a little while ago is we're using um uh do you want to talk about the nematodes yes Yes. it's super interesting (laughs) i think it's really interesting oh it's fascinating yeah (laughs) so like like you're saying amber you know there's there's a you know we're in kind of the modern era of agriculture which is you know we want to we want a more sustainable tomorrow i think the consumer demands that certainly scientists wants that and so um one really good example in the cranberry industry right now is the nematodes so um nematodes as a plant pathologist are near and dear to my heart because (laughs) nematodes are actually one of the quote-unquote pathogen groups that we study as plant pathologists there are also nematode species that will attack plants Mm -hmm. much to their detriment but um, the nematodes that we're working with right now in the cranberry industry um, are being used to target specifically a little beetle called the cranberry flea beetle Um, the cranberry flea beetle is a really challenging insect pest that targets our plants late in the season um, right before harvest, in a lot of cases, they'll come in on you know in August. So if you figure that uh, cranberry harvest is going to kick off in earnest sometime early to mid September, um, the flea beetles will some sometimes will be found in July, but really where they make their big push is in the month of August, and they are an immense challenge to us as growers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. One of the strategies that's currently being tested successfully um, is using nematodes. So tiny little roundworms is what a nematode is, uh, deployed and drenched into the soil uh, of the cranberry bed early in the year, um, typically in the month of May and June. And what those little tiny roundworms do is they actually target the larvae of the cranberry flea beetle that are present in the soil. And so these little roundworms wiggle around in the ground and they look for cranberry flea beetle larvae and they actually attack them, infest them and kill them. And um, the neat thing about nematodes is that they are highly, highly specific to their food group. So rest assured, you are not going to be targeted by these nematodes. (laughs) People ask about that all the time. Um, Nematodes are highly specific to the group of organisms that they target. So there are nematodes that feed only on insects. There are nematodes that feed only on fungi. There are nematodes that feed only on plants, et cetera. So these particular nematodes, uh, two main species are being used right now, but there are a couple of others that are being investigated by different groups. Um, are specific to insects only. And so they are used as a very safe alternative uh, in order to get pests out of our fields at a time of year when other options aren't necessarily on the table. Um, We've seen very strong preliminary success with a couple of different species. And there are growers that are kind of rolling this out on a larger scale right now in an effort to combat this pest. So this is a really good example of you know, kind of sustainability in action on a modern farm in a way that is really beneficial to everyone involved. Yeah. And and again, I can't say enough good things about the UW Extension program yep. and the studies yep. that they're doing. Yep. Um, every year, the growers kind of get together with the researchers and, and we vent out our concerns that we have. Um, and one of them being these these products, you know, that are being as readily available to us and what can we do instead? And this is one of the ways that they found and it's extremely effective and it's it's a big deal. It is. Yeah. And it it fit it falls into it falls into the larger conversation about what we call integrated pest management or mm-hmm. IPM. And 
Um, IPM is not a new concept, but integrated pest management is basically the idea that you can control pest complex in more ways than just by using chemicals. Um, there are other ways as well. So integrated pest management traditionally includes, it would include chemical control, but it would also include um, biological control, for example, as well as cultural control. So nematodes, for example, would be an example of biological control, using a biological organism to control an undesirable pest, in this case, the cranberry flea beetle. Um, there are also practices that growers, both organic and conventional, use equally um, that would fall into the cultural category. So one really good example is flooding. Mm -hmm. um, cranberries are flooded, not just for harvest, but also in the spring for grass protection. Many growers also use flooding in the spring to get rid of a lot of insect pests. Mm -hmm. And this is called the bug flood. Um, it's <laughs> it's that kind of an iconic thing. I, it's on a side note, it's immensely unique to the cranberry industry. I can tell you that when I worked in apples, we did not flood the orchards. <laughs> <laughs> there were no bug floods. Um, but uh, the bug flood is basically, it's pretty ingenious. It's essentially the grower waits until the various pre-bloom caterpillars start chewing on the vines mm -hmm. and the grower floods the bed and brings that water level up and the caterpillars get drowned and washed away. Uh, no other crop that I'm aware of does it, but it's quite effective for cranberry. So uh, that would be another example of something that would fall into the cultural management control box under kind of that larger integrated pest management umbrella. Side note, going off of that, speaking of bugs, yeah. anytime I post anything yeah. about cranberries, everyone's like, what about the spiders? Yes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and Oh my goodness. Like here, I yes. we don't have the spiders, but I've oh, heard my. out east, yes. do they really use spiders as is insect control, is that like their nematodes? Um, there have, so there have been attempts made to use spiders as economic control. But what, what I would say is generally speaking, spiders uh, where they have been tried is widespread biological controls. <laughs> can, I, can I say fortunately? Yeah. Okay? Fortunately have not been super successful. Um, no, the, so spiders are obviously a natural part of the cranberry ecosystem as well as other ecosystems, certainly. Um, the couple, couple of issues with using spiders specifically as a biocontrol in cranberry is that um, multiplying them and getting them deployed is difficult business. Um, one of the nicest things about nematodes uh, by comparison to something say like a spider is that you can fit a huge number of nematodes into a very small space. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to get, let's say a canister delivered to a marsh that contains several million or even billion nematodes. Um, I think we could both imagine what 7 billion spiders would look I'd, like. I'd rather not imagine that. <laughs> so, so I'm certainly not saying it's, it's never, it has been attempted. It's not, I'm not saying it's impossible, but um, nematodes are microscopic organisms. Spiders are macroscopic organisms, right? So um, you can understand why from a biocontrol standpoint, um, multiplication of spiders has not been super high priority item for a lot of biological companies. Mm -hmm. However, I will say that spiders are an important part of the natural pest group that we do rely on in cranberry. So one thing that's worth noting about cranberry growing specifically is that growers, both conventional and organic growers, are using integrated pest management on their marshes. And integrated pest management, one of the central tenets of that practice is preserving what we call natural enemies. A natural enemy is any organism that lives in or around the cranberry or other crop environment 
that attacks something that we don't like. Mm -hmm. So a spider is an excellent example of this because a spider does not feed on cranberries. We don't put the spider there, but we don't want to kill the spider either. Presumably the, the spider is doing some good. And so there are other insects like lacewing flies are great examples, tachinid flies, several other species that actually attack and eat certain numbers of uh, insect pests. So integrated pest management in both conventional and organic production is also targeted specifically at making sure that we're preserving these beneficial, as we call them, beneficial organisms. Cool. Yes. So no spiders. And, no. and the spiders that we do have, they're just little tiny. Yeah, just little ones. Just little manageable. Ones. manageable. Very manageable. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I could handle being a grower if we just flooded up flooded everything and then had wolf spiders coming out. Uh, that would be... Yeah. That's my worst nightmare. I don't know. That might be, that might affect my career as a scientist too. <laughs> so kind of, kind of sidetracking off of that, talking about scary things. Yeah. Let's kind of get back to the grocery store. Sure. Yeah. So walking down the aisles, you're seeing all these big trigger words. Mm -hmm. um, we, we already covered organic. Is there anything, um, is there anything as, as a, a shopper and mm -hmm. you see something organic versus just regular mm -hmm. are you gravitating towards one or the other with mm -hmm. with one product versus another like is there anything we should be careful about um or is it just kind of a price difference you know personally i don't really gravitate from one to the other for one versus the other um typically my family is a price point shopping family mm -hmm. um you know i certainly can't comment on the what every family may do financially in that regard, right? But uh, I would say my family is pretty firmly into the price point category. Um, to, you know, typically I would say my favorite words are things like grower owned. Yeah. I, I like seeing, you know, so a lot, I think a lot of consumers look for, let's say organic versus uh, non-organic, but in my family, I tend to look for things like grower owned or hundred percent of the profits to growers mm -hmm. or local. I love the word local yeah. because if you know the grower or you know the industry, you know exactly what's being done to it. There's nothing, there's nothing nefarious going on, right? So I would say as a shopper, um, we do tend to be price point shoppers in my family, but also we do tend to gravitate towards products that are uh, co-op created or grower owned uh, or locally sourced. We do like those words a lot. Sure. Yeah. So one isn't more nutritious or better no, Interestingly, than the other. no. Nutritionally, no. And that is something as a scientist, I suppose I could certainly mention that there's really never been a scientifically established link in increased nutrient quality between organic and, and conventional food. So in terms of, uh, you know, the vitamins and minerals found in one versus the other, no, there's really never been a distinctive linkage between one practice versus the other. So you know, talking about cranberries specifically, no, one is they both have, they are both very good for you. Cranberries being one great <laughs> example of a, a, a fruit or vegetable that are highly nutritious, nutritious, rich in vitamins and nutrients, and certainly something that our family eats a lot of for sure. So, yeah, yep. good, good. Um, yep. Another, another big trigger is antibiotic free. Yeah. Yes. How, yep. how do you feel about uh, those labels? You know, I will readily admit that I am a plant scientist and i don't really know that much about animal <laughs> agriculture <laughs> okay good um and i i think uh maybe maybe next time uh, becca's on she might uh, maybe we could get some thoughts from her on that but yeah. uh you know I, I would say for most animal products uh my family we tend to be price point shoppers um i uh i'm not sitting here saying that that's right you know i think i as a scientist one thing that i always try to keep in mind is that i don't uh 
I like to say that I try not to have opinions. I look at data, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm I'm willing to be convinced otherwise, I guess is what I would say. But uh, no, in my family, we tend to just be price point shoppers. Okay. Yeah. Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The last one. Yeah. Uh, another another big trigger word is GMOs. A lot mm -hmm. of people are yeah. afraid of GMOs. Yep. Um, I yep. think it's just kind of scary. I think for you know a non-farmer to yeah. think that science is oh, being yeah. involved. Yep. Uh, with their product. So um, what are your thoughts on GMO versus non-GMO? Sure. This is a great question. I mean, the first thing I would say is that there are no GMO cranberries. They don't exist. Mm -hmm. So I'll um, I'll obviously say a few things, you know, make some comments, but just to get that clear out of the air, yep. there actually are no GMO cranberries in existence. I mean, so if, if you happen to see a bag of cranberries that says <laughs> that, it, they could all say that, right? Yeah. There, there yeah. are no GMO cranberries on the market. You couldn't buy one for any amount of money. So um, we'll just kind of square that one off right away. But genetic modification uh, certainly is something that has become very controversial in recent years. Um, I think like you alluded to, it, it sounds, sounds pretty scary. Um, it's something that people are a little bit afraid of. What is it exactly? Um, well, genetic modification is, is something that we've been doing um, in varying ways for a long, long time. When people talk about GMO now, they're mostly referring to um, a lab, you know, lab type procedures where genes are being inserted or deleted. And that is something that can be done. But what most plant scientists have to say on the subject is that we've been inserting and deleting genes in plants for a long time. And what I mean by that is we breed plants, we cross plants. So if you look at uh, the you know wild relatives for most of our food plants today, they don't look very good and they don't taste very good. Wild carrots, for example, are bitter and small and not great for eating. Wild blueberries are tiny and small. Wild strawberries, you'd have to pick like 10,000 of them to make a, a bucket of jam. So what happened? Well, we, we bred them and it's just good old fashioned plant breeding. We took two parents that we liked certain traits of, we crossed them, we planted the seeds and we took those seeds planted them out and looked at which ones were good and we took those ones and crossed them again and again and again and again and those plants are not what they were they are genetically different they actually have been modified from their wild ancestors and that's true of all of our which is what all of our plants mm -hmm. these days um, if you were to look at the ancient version of most anything we eat you'd be quite surprised because it looks nothing like it used to so changing plants changing the genetic makeup of plants to suit our needs is actually not a new concept it's actually an ancient concept we've been doing it since the dawn of our, our really our organized civilization so the worry over eating a plant because genetic makeup has been changed in some way um, as a scientist my concern is not really there um, there are different ways that GMO can be done uh, in a lab. And I will make the distinction between plant breeding and genetic modification. So nowadays, when we talk about natural selection of genes, we just talk, we call that plant breeding, which is in of itself a version of modifying genetics, but we call it plant breeding. GMO or genetic modification is usually something that we refer to happening in a lab. And really what that amounts to in most cases is just expediting the process that we used to do in a very slow way. So let's say there's a certain gene that makes a carrot sweet. Mm -hmm. The good old fashioned way to get the carrot sweeter was to cross and cross and cross and cross and cross and plant thousands of plants until finally through natural means that gene that makes the carrot sweet happens to make its way into one of those carrots. And then you can get the seed from that carrot and reproduce that, that sweeter carrot. 
the modern, should we say, genetic modification way is just to take that gene and stick it into a carrot genome. You can do that now. That's wild. Yeah, it is. It's like Jurassic Park. Right. So, <laughs> and I am oversimplifying here for yeah. the sake of brevity, right? But most genetic modification is either insertional or deletion. So mm -hmm. usually you're either inserting a gene that you like, or you're deleting a gene that you don't like. So maybe a good example of deleting a gene would be um, a while back, there was an apple variety called the Arctic apple that was released, and they had deleted the gene that caused it to turn brown when you cut it open. So the Arctic apple, you could cut it open and it wouldn't turn brown. That was kind of the, that was the idea. Interesting, right? Yeah. But so, <laughs> so what did they do with it? I mean, why is it still around? No, it's not really widely available. And, and that's something that I would really, you know, kind of emphasize is that the vast overwhelming majority of the produce that we have access to as American consumers is not GMO at all, in mm -hmm. fact. And a big part of that is actually due to consumer pushback. So I think that, you know, as a scientist, I can certainly have, you know, I can certainly have um, ideas or opinions on the matter. But the reality is that most American consumers are not fans of the word GMO. And yeah. so there's really not a lot of direct incentive for most companies or growers to produce GMO food because people are people are kind of afraid of it. And so not much of it does make it onto the grocery store shelf. Which is interesting. And and I mean from a scientific perspective again, mm -hmm. there's is there anything wrong with GMOs? Is there again any nutritional real difference again kind of like talking about conventional versus organic? Is there any benefit versus not benefit, there hasn't I guess. there hasn't really been any demonstrated negative consequence to eating genetically modified food no um that's that's certainly never been something that's been established or linked and much of the food that people consume without realizing it you know has had that has had that that happen so a good example is sugar mm -hmm. sugar beets or sugar um certainly is a common example of a food that has had some of that done so and there's only, what is there, five, seven, nine types of GMO? There, there isn't very many. So a lot of the labels that you are seeing in the store, again, that say non-GMO, mm -hmm. like that doesn't even have a GMO to it, begin it with. It doesn't mean anything, right? Yeah. And, and that's what, that, you know, that's kind of what I was picking out with the cranberry thing, right? Like, um, there are no GMO cranberries. Um, it's kind of like I've seen a joke about gluten-free salt. Mm -hmm. Salt doesn't have gluten in it, right? right. <laughs> there right. is no gluten in salt. Um, so for example, if you were to see, uh, you know, um, you know, a, a cranberry or a blueberry or a raspberry advertised as non-GMO, you're, you're basically, I mean, it's true, but it would be true of everything else in the store as well. It's, it's, it's very firmly would fall into kind of that, uh, that marketing technique, right? Yeah. There's a lot of fear-based marketing going on yes. out there, a, a, a new way for, um, them just kind of hike up the prices a little bit. And uh, again, this is one of those examples where it's more beneficial to turn and ask a farmer rather than asking Google for things like this. Um, I mean, we're going to shoot you straight. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's sure. we're, we're not here to kind of sell you on, on a higher price point by any means. Um, we just want, again, to make sure that what we're providing for you and your family is going to be safe and the best product possible. Um, so kind of kind of wrapping things up here, when you do get fresh produce, is there anything that you do when you bring it home to make sure that it's fresh and, and stays clean? Um, nothing particularly out of the ordinary. I mean, we produce a lot of, uh, I have a big garden. Mm -hmm. I don't really do much to 
stuff I get from the store that I don't do from stuff that comes out of my garden. I'll give it a rinse uh, with some water just to make sure there's no bugs on it. <laughs> yeah, but you don't buy like a, a vegetable wash no, or whatever. No, no, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think as a as a scientist, uh, you know, that that works in and, and kind of sees and oversees the food the food industry as as it kind of works. I, I do have a high degree of trust in what's on the market and what's what's present. And so, no, there's. Nothing particularly special or unusual that I'll do to anything I get from the store. Um, like I said at the end of the day, um, you know, our our uh, our supply of food in this country is is both immense and highly regulated, mm-hmm. and it's in in a way that I think is hard to understand unless you're a farmer, kind of like you mentioned. But the hoops that the hoops that you have to jump through. Just There's a lot of hoops. A lot of hoops, right? Yep. And it doesn't matter what you're growing. The number of hoops really, uh, really hits hits home on that fact. I mean, it's this is not a free for all. There are a ton of rules in place, and all of them are designed to keep people safe. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's a process that we all willingly participate in because, right? Like, as a cranberry grower, you know, you you are. If that's part of your legacy and your responsibility, right? Is to mm-hmm. provide, you know, provide something that's safe and enjoyable and healthy for the American consumer. And that's certainly not something that growers take lightly. And I would say that that's true in every industry I've worked with. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think I think you said it all perfectly there. Um, is there any other big point that we didn't talk about that you want the consumer to know? Um, again, just to feel safe when they're walking through the grocery store. I think like you mentioned, you know, a really good place to start if you ever have any questions about how a crop is grown is talking to a grower or talking to a scientist. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think with the in the era of the Internet, it's very easy to be an expert on something. Right. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, if you have a heart condition, you want to talk to a heart surgeon. You mm-hmm. know, if you uh, if you need help with uh, something in the legal nature, you talk to a lawyer. Right. Um, people have this, this, you know, this this tendency to look up stuff online. Yeah, but the reality is that much like, you know, calling a lawyer for legal trouble or a doctor for medical problems, really, if you want to learn about food, you really, it, it, the best way to learn about it is just to talk to someone who is a professional and does it, does this professionally. Um, the amount of knowledge that you gain from just speaking with, interacting with growers is vastly higher than what you're going to get just about anywhere else. And like anything else, um, uh, well, it's just always good to have an eye out as you're looking around for, you know, for just opportunities to learn. I think just keeping a, keeping an open mind and talking to growers whenever possible. And I would say that that's one of the best parts about my job. Um, you know, I I get to I get to interact with, talk to, and work with growers every day. And so I get to hear what's on their mind. I also get to see what happens on the farm. And uh, when if you have that kind of if you have that kind of opportunity, um, you you develop the same level of understanding and trust that you would develop with a longtime pediatrician for your family or your dentist or your lawyer. Um, these are trained professionals who do a great job and they're people like the rest of us and they're good at what they do. It's a great opportunity to learn. So Ooh, I think you hit it on the head right there. That's that's, right. that's a great, that's a great closing statement. Um, so thank you. Dave, for coming on here today. Yeah, I think I, I definitely learned a lot um, from, a, from you know, the millennial mom perspective and as a farmer perspective yep. as well. Um, yep. So hopefully you guys uh, took something away from this episode as well. If you have any other questions um, that weren't answered on today's episode, feel free to shoot us a, a DM. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram over at Forward Farming Podcast.
I'm over at Cranberry Chats. Becca's over at Becca Hilby. And thank you guys so much for listening. And we'll see you next week.